you're, you're right, it's exactly the same, um, even in musical theatre uh, as well. Uh, and that's what I was saying about the fear. The fear goes right the way through from vocational up to and into the profession. There is that fear that someone will find out. There's, there's also built in a fear of showing a sign of weakness, whether it's emotional weakness, whether it's physical weakness. So this is why we're told at an early age, you work through your pain. It's a tough career. You've got to be tough now. You're going to go into, into a career like that. So you work through your pain, which means you're going to be injured. And you've got to keep your mouth shut because you're injured, because otherwise they're going to take you off that cast, uh, cast list. And um, it's, it's horrendous the way that the fear is generated. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So today you're going to hear from Terry Hyde, who's a psychotherapist slash counsellor. Terry started dancing age six, gaining a five-year scholarship to the Royal Academy of Dance at the age of 10. He joined the Royal Ballet at age 18 and subsequently joined London's Festival Ballet as a soloist, playing roles such as Dr. Capelius in Capelia, Sanche Panza in Don Quixote and the headmistress in Graduation Ball. Terry left the ballet world to explore other art artistic genres and performed in musicals in London's West End in film and on TV. On retiring from performing, Terry set up as a business manager for people in all areas of the performing arts. On selling the business 15 years later and inspired by the realisation that many of the people he'd worked with had also sought his advice on personal issues, he retrained as a psychotherapist. Terry founded the counsellingfordancers.com in 2017 and has been working to support the unique needs of dancers in relation to their mental health ever since. In 2021, he created the Help for Dancers app and the Dancers Personal Development series of ebooks and e-courses. In 2021, Terry won the One Dance UK Dance Healthcare Practitioner Award and in 2022 was invited onto the advisory board of Point Magazine. Terry presents interactive mental health self-care workshops for dancers, both in person and virtually, and these proactive workshops help support dancers' mental well-being, teaching them how to be mentally fit and emotionally strong. I'm really pleased you're able to join us today, Terry. Thanks for coming along. Thank you very much, Naomi and David. Thank you for inviting me. Hello, Terry. I'm very pleased to meet you today. Terry, you've had a terribly, terribly interesting career, which is also quite varied, isn't it? Um, you've had three different careers, although there's a thread that weaves them all together. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you got into the, the first career that you had, which was becoming a highly proficient dancer. Well, uh, Naomi read out my bio, and uh, yeah, I think that's sort of self-explanatory, but I, I think I could pad it out <clears throat> probably for about half an hour, but I'll try just to give you 30 seconds of it. And you know, starting dancing at six years old, as soon as I started, I, I realized that that is what I want to do. And there's a real sort of feeling of vocation. That that's it, I want to be a performer. And it just all developed from there. And it was heads down and I just fired away. I'm seeing similar things in dancers that are coming for therapy and also in, in the workshops of the same mindset and I'm looking, I'm looking for someone to do some research on, on this theory. Was I um, on the neurodiverse spectrum at age six? And that is why I went for something like ballet. I mean, my mother took me to ballet classes, but was I there looking at something that's very black and white because especially ballet training, not necessarily other things like tap or um, musical theater, but ballet is so precise, very much like gymnastics, or swimming, um, <clears throat> ballroom, very black and white, you're either right or you're wrong. And <clears throat> going, into, going into something like that, you're either attracted to it because of the glamour and the lights and the dancing, etc. And then those 
traits are then exacerbated to create a higher level of ADHD and autism. And so when, when people come to me for anxiety and et cetera, I get them to do, we call it a quiz. It's the ADHD and autism quiz because it is basically one of the um, tests that, that people will go through for a diagnosis. <clears throat> but it's just to give them an idea, but also to work out what their power is, what's their superpowers out of these neurodiverse traits. So I've gone way off what you were going to talk about, but I just wanted to explain that because it comes into the fact that those two neurodiverse um, disorders need control. And so the control in, in ballet class, ballet rehearsals and performances per se, um, need the control of, from those different traits. But when there's no control, that's when anxiety comes in. When people that's haven't got control of their lives, as we saw from the first, uh, well, not just the first one, but all the, the lockdowns that, that we've had in the, uh, over the few years ago, the anxiety levels shot up because people were out of control. Those with a flexible mindset, I know um, a psychologist call them growth mindset, but I call it flexible because I work with dancers, flexible body, flexible mindset. So those with a flexible mindset or a growth mindset really did well in, in those, you know, thinking up new business lines, etc. So it, the workshops are, to, are, to, are meant to do a proactive approach by getting people to have more of a flexible mindset and to reduce the anxiety and the depression that comes from too much anxiety. Um, and as I said to you just a moment ago, I got way off what you were going to talk about because I did want to make that point that dancers, so ballet dancers that go through this elite training that I went through and the elite performing are so fixed in their mindsets and that's what creates a lot of um, perfectionism injuries because you're pushing yourself too far and you're tired and you get injured and, I, and I'm sure um, those that are watching who are indifferent uh, so like sports, athletics, anything that can see exactly the same thing uh, with their clients or patients. It's a really interesting observation, Terry. And I, I, I suppose if anyone is listening, it sounds like you were inviting um, collaboration to, to explore this hypothesis because you, you seem to be saying that maybe there's something about certain forms of body work, whether that be dance or um, other sports that that encourages that that is a particularly appealing to people who might might be neurodivergent, but also I think I caught in your first point you were perhaps suggesting that dance may in fact exacerbate that um, that way of being. Yes, yeah, because I um, I've done the the tests, not the proper um, diagnosis tests, uh, all of the tests, but I'm just below uh, the criteria. And so I understand it, I understand, but because I've understood it for such a long time, you know, as part of my um, uh, psychotherapy training, I did four years of weekly therapy. That was what we had to do, you know, clear ourselves out, understand what it's like to sit in the patient's chair. Um, so I got to understand myself more way back then. And it was then I realized that I do have these traits. Some of them are my superpowers, the perseverance, the push, the control, the um, focus. But the other ones that get beyond that perfectionism, I've been able to use the neuroplasticity and change my habits incrementally to be able to say, no, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Honestly, Terry, it doesn't matter. And then you slowly, 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 you change your habits into a way that uh, keeps you safe. It's all very interesting. I, I went to see uh, Turandos at the Royal Opera House uh, last week, and I've mm -hmm. seen that production lots and lots of times, but due to the fact that they were nearly booked up, I had to buy seats very near the, the front. And um, so I, I, I really focus on the dancing in that production. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a lot of dancing, um, mm -hmm. lots of dancing production numbers. And I was really struck by just the kind of things you're describing, really, the absolute perfection of 
every action from the movement of the legs to the tiny uh, gentle undulations of the hands and the fingers. Um, and I guess that's what you're re referring to. Uh, yeah. And everything has to be on time as well. <laughs> yes, precisely. And all at the same time. Yes, it's really quite extraordinary for an amateur like me. But what you're saying is there's many, many hours of, uh, of hard work goes into to developing that kind of perf perfect performance. But the issue at the moment, and I'm a great vocal advocate for this, is to change the way that students are taught ballet. So it was, it's all very Eastern European that is coming over to Western Europe and the States, Australia, etc. The, re the rest of the world. And it, it has to be a more supportive way of um, training rather than you do this, you can't speak in the in the studio because I'm telling you and I know what's right and you've got to do it this way and if you're wrong and we we were corrected all the time but with no compliments so we grew up thinking that we're not good enough and so there's low self-esteem already to start with so you're you're you're, tra you're trained in fear you, you you go through your training in fear. Um, for all different reasons, you know, not pleasing your parents, not pleasing the teachers, not pleasing the examiner, not pleasing the audience. Then you go into the profession and you have to please the artistic director, the choreographer. So you go through a whole life from age, some people don't start at three. So I started at six. Uh, I retired when I was 29. So all that time was worked in fear. And then the transition of out of dance out of performing, you fear uh, what's, what's ahead of you. But you don't realize how many transferable skills that you've got. And so in these workshops, this is what I talk about, I do the coaching of transitions for, for dancers, for professional dancers. And I think I've gone off what I was going to say, David, <laughs> from what you were, you were saying. Oh, that's right, it was, it was the training all the way through. And it is, it is, severe sometimes because of the way of the training. So advocating now for a more supportive way of training and using at least um, the same amount of compliments as, as you are, as, as the teachers are giving in corrections to be able to balance it out. Otherwise, you know, people in my era and even now some of, as I said, Eastern European training the rush is the Russian training that's spread to the Eastern European, a very severe. Um, I don't want to know about your uh, injuries. I don't don't want to know about your your emotions. You leave all of that outside the studio door. All I want to see you is dance, and that is the sort of atmosphere of fear that's created mm. uh, in, in a studio. Sounds as though it could be experienced as neglectful, if not a bit abusive at times. I mean, if you're thinking about very young children being subjected to constant criticism with very little praise, mm. you know, do we set people off dancing too young? No, no, I think I think dancing and movement is excellent for well-being. It's just the teaching methods that create um, the, the wrong ideals within within that environment. But, you know, children go along because they like to jump around to music, whether it's in time or not, it doesn't matter, but it's an enjoyable thing. And as the teaching goes on and you're getting older and older, you, you need to pass your exams, you get those that have a flexible mindset saying, I don't like this, I'm leaving. And so you, you, you lose so many people that could really have been good, good performers but because of the way of the training, they can't stand it, they drop out. And that's why I'm saying it's funneled, neurodiversity has been funneled right the way up into vocational schools, because they're the only ones that say, yes, I need to do this, this has got to be right, da 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 like that black and white thing. So I'm just thinking about what you've, you've been saying there, because uh, the comment you made earlier about training in fear, those long is, is, is a very powerful observation, of, of, of course. And I was wondering what makes the difference between those who drop out 
and those like yourself who stuck at it? Um, well, maybe because I'm a belligerent so-and-so and I wanted to get where I wanted to get to. And I'd stuck with it. And I, and I think these are neurodiverse traits. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to go for. And um, it's very much like, I mean, some of the interviews I've been hearing about for, for businessmen, multimillionaires or the billionaires, they say, that's what I want. And I'm going to go for it. I'm not a multimillionaire, not even a millionaire. But that's perseverance. That's the target. That's what I want. And when I left, um, I, I was, I, I had to leave show business to look after my two children for personal reasons. And so I didn't finish my career. I, I wanted to go on. I was doing really well in West End shows, getting, starting to get good parts. But I had to give all that up and went into, into financial services and sales to get my, do a day job. Don't forget, don't give up your day job, we're told. And, um, and then I set up the business management organization. So it was that drive I used. So the drive that I used for ballet training, I used for the outside and the rest for the rest of my life and just persevered and pushed. Um, and it was just before lockdown, the universe said to me, you're pushing yourself too hard. And I slipped on some pigeon poo and whiplashed my, my neck and I was out for two months. Um, in other words, the universe put me on my back and I realized I had to stop doing that. So I cut down all my hours. I only see patients Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday now, Monday and Fridays, I've got meetings. Like today's a Friday. Pushed back a bit, and only seeing um, a few patients now, cut those down and also um, going out. I haven't, I haven't gone abroad again because I used to travel around the, uh, the US doing uh, workshops for dance companies and, uh, and uh, studios there. So I'm just doing the UK. Um, take Great. The around, taking so, it really easy. So, so I didn't quite understand why you gave up dancing. Did you say it was because of financial reasons or? No, personal, personal reasons. I had to, for personal reasons, which I'm not going to talk about, but I had to look after my two children. And therefore, uh, I had to get myself a day job. I couldn't go touring around the country or abroad. or I know I, know I had West End shows and things like that. Uh, and so that's that's why I gave up. So what, uh, what was it like? Here's... What was it like to give to give up a career a, a career that you love? Because I think that's another thing that often happens for for athletes um, mm. in whatever sports is that someone might just get to an age where they're not as fit or as fast anymore, so they're retiring off time, you know, earlier than other people might be, mm. or if they encounter an injury, so people might retire early for a whole host of reasons. But I wonder what it was like for you to have to retire at that point in, in life. But it wasn't until I did those four years of weekly therapy when I was trained to be a psychotherapist that I realized I was going through three to four years of a grieving process. And I didn't realize it then. Because I said, I just put my head down, right, I'm gonna start this business, I'm gonna build that up. Uh, people in show business uh, will trust what I'm doing, uh, etc. So that was really the, the focus of it. So I didn't work through the grieving process at all. Um, I would hear music on, uh, sort of, you know, ballet music or something like that, or music from, from the theatre, and I would walk out the room. I don't realise what I was doing. It's just an unconscious thing. I don't like this. I have a feeling in my stomach. Lots of other things like that. So all my mates were still on television then, and that's when, in those days, you'd have um 12 dancers you know six six uh, guys six girls um and then all my mates st still working and i was like you know, i can't watch that and and it wasn't until that time of four years of weekly therapy that i realized and that's when i started grieving it all came out so i was holding on to it for all those years and you know as a, a as a therapist um you'll know that people in middle age may have lost a partner or a husband or a wife or whatever um, years ago. And they, they, because they had to deal with all the estates and things like that, uh, they, 
they forgot about breathing or they just set it aside. I set it aside, I do it later. Um, and then they become ill, but they don't know why. And you work out that it was um, the loss of something, whatever it was, loss of a job, loss of a career, loss of identity. And I think that's what I'm getting now with a lot of uh, dancers that are going through a transition period. And with the lockdown, they also, it's not a case of taking um, early retirement, but they re they realize I've only got a couple of years to go. I haven't been working in these two years. I think I'm going to give up now and just look for something else. And they just look for something else but they don't realize they're losing an identity, an identity that right from an early age. So they may be in their, their 30s or their late 20s uh, wanting to do something else, but they may have started um, 15 years. So that they, that's their identity for 15 years. Um, and, and they're losing that identity. So he's working through with patients uh, regarding that. And so I had to do that myself. As a, as a realization when I was having therapy myself. So you you retired as a dancer, you went into financial services with the same kind of determination, drive and ambition as you had when training to be a dancer. And then at some point you changed your mind and wanted to develop into a psychotherapist. Is that, is that right? How did you go about doing that? Well, um, the, so I did a year's training of financial services and then set up my own business. It was called personal and business management uh, for people in show business. So it's not just uh, dancers and actors and singers. It was lighting designers, theatre designers, uh, all different types. In fact, I even got two dentists because they were dentists <laughs> of clients of mine in show business. So I, I then, um, went to some of the agents that I knew when I was working and they said, oh yeah, great. Can you do our books? Because I was also doing books. And I had to then bring in um, bookkeepers and an accountant to look after that side of the business. I dealt with the, the investment and the pensions and business advice uh, in that respect. So I had some like a half a dozen high profile, um, well-known um, actors and actresses and dancers uh, and artistic directors. Um, and all the rest were the, uh, the bookkeepers were doing their people's VAT and their uh, tax if they weren't limited companies, but the accountant would do the limited companies. Um, and that's I built up and ran for 15 years. Now, a lot of the people, when, when I'd either go to, to get all the paperwork from them or they had, uh, we had a business meeting, uh, a lot of the, of the clients would offload their personal issues on them. So I obviously have got one of those faces <laughs> that people would just offload things on. And it was when I sold the business, I, I gave myself a, an early retirement of a couple of years and then I got bored. And I thought, do you know what? I'd really like to know what to do with all this information that people give me. And that's when I trained as a psychotherapist. So it was, uh, pun intended, it wasn't... It was a leap from dance to business management to psychotherapy. Obviously, all in time. <laughs> yes, you've got all the skills. I wish I had, uh, Terry. Uh, I'm very uh, envious of you. So what psychotherapeutic models were you drawn towards? Um, I think from a, <clears throat> from a sort of spiritual point of view, it was Jungian. Um, psychotherapy. So I mean, uh, my basic training was a union psychodynamic psychotherapist, but I veered away from just being the whiteboard and sitting in silence. So it was there was more sort of person-centered coming in on that. I did a, a course in CBT um, uh, as well to form part of what I can offer the patients. So it's not a one-size-fits-all at all. I mean, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be really, um, I can't remember the word at the moment. Um, I don't advocate CBT as a standalone therapy. I use CBT techniques to help with the symptoms. And then as a psychotherapist work with what's going on underneath 
so that the symptoms don't appear again. Um, so I'm not putting CBT down mm. per se, but just as uh, the way that the NHS use it, just mm. to sort of speedily get rid of the symptoms. Bye-bye, you're well, okay, don't come back. Um, me, me, me being cynical here. You're going to get a lot of letters about this, aren't you? <laughs> uh, I, well, I, I think that view is probably widely uh, shared, actually, Terry, that uh, the anxiety of the way it's been turned into the sort of uh, major industrial part of um, mm -hmm. NHS mental health. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. <laughs> um, so, so, Something so that may apply to you. Sorry to interrupt, David, but I, I just thought... What's the title of your the podcast again? Locked at Living. What was I saying about the studios and the dance? It's very much so, isn't it? Yeah. You do what I tell you. Type mm. of thing. Yeah, and certainly we've had a couple of guests on who've spoken about how, although David and I both worked in prisons, which is kind of like where our background, where our interest came from we've had you know guests make observations about being locked up can have all sorts of um meanings really in terms of how people are imprisoned within their own minds or mm. don't have access to their emotions i've been in prison a couple of uh, three times so twice uh for um 24 hour watch because i worked in a for six months doing when i was doing my master's degree but in a psychiatric unit for six months and here on the Isle of Wight, right opposite the hospital, uh, is the Isle of Wight prisons. Um, Albany, Parkhurst, and another one, I can't remember, but they're called the Isle of Wight prisons now. So I'd spent a couple of uh, evenings, overnights, uh, in prison, keeping 24 hour watch on uh, suicide, suicide watch. Um, and then visiting um, a prison and a remand center when this is not on the, on the um, bio, but I, I was a magistrate for um, 14 years, uh, worked in the family court and in, um, in the criminal court, both sitting as chair as well, mm -hmm. with my two wings. So it was interesting as a psychotherapist in a family court, um, hearing all the, what the Americans call BS, that the, that the barristers were, were saying about their, and I'm thinking, no, really? <laughs> Where have you got that from? And 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 uh, so sometimes verbally I would bang the uh, partners' heads together, you know, because no one's going to believe uh, what they're saying a lot a lot of the time. They're trying to get one up on each other because that's the way their relationship was. And I did for some years uh, do couples counselling, but that just got very frustrating as well. So uh, it's just one to ones now. So you, you never fancied being a dance therapist? Ah, now there you go. Dance therapy, I don't think, is for dancers. I think dance movement therapy is for the general population. Um, because dancers are so specific about how they're trained and what they do. And what came up the other day, actually, in a, in a, in a therapy session, was one of the dancers said um, she went, she had, she had an injury, so she went to the uh, physiotherapist, and the physiotherapist gave her some uh, movement, some exercise, and, and she said she realised, she said, um, was that right? Did I do that right? How many times do you want me to do it? And the, the physiotherapist, it doesn't matter how many times, just do it, you know. And this is the issue with dance movement therapy for dancers. They wouldn't do it. You have to be free. You've got to release the traumas that, you're, that are in your body. It doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter whether you're in time with the music. Just do I, it. I can see and how that might clash. <laughs> I, can, I can see how that might clash, Perry, but I suppose I'm, it's making me think a little bit about, um, for instance, when... Um, Perhaps somebody's got, a, a, you know, perhaps you've got a woman who's got a history of being sexually abused by a man and people then say, well, you need to have a female only therapist, not a man, when in fact, maybe they need the man in order to confront the very issues 
that are there. And I'm just, I suppose I'm just wondering whether dancers might actually get benefit from working with a dance, a dance therapist who's looking for something quite different to address some of the rigidity of, you know, what their history brings with them into that situation. The thing is, you see, but yes, they need me <laughs> and they need, and I'm trying to get other dancers that are going through a transition to, to start countdown. I've got two, two dancers now. Uh, one is just finishing their counselling training and another one is just about to start in September because I want to start referring dancers that come to me. I get, I get um, probably 50% of my patients are from the US uh, and, and the rest are from the UK and, and Europe. I've got one from Australia, which is very difficult timing. Um, so I do need more dancers to become counsellors or psychotherapists. But so many dancers are doing are training to be dance movement therapists. And I take your point, Naomi, but, but I think it's a totally different thing. Dance movement therapy is, is, to, is to help re relieve the traumas. And yes, okay, they're females and they get away females. But, you know, I, I don't advertise at all. Yes, I've got a website. So people come on there, they email me. They know I'm a male. They know I've been a professional dancer. That's what attracts them to me. Now, obviously, I don't know if anyone says, oh, he's a male. Sorry. I suppose I was trying to use an analogy there that, that actually maybe sometimes the thing that feels hardest to do might actually offer more, most potential for growth. So actually, as a dancer, to go for therapy in a way of dancing, which is totally different to, to what you've been inculcated into, might actually offer, you know, making mistakes, the freedom to make mistakes, for instance, or the freedom to, to, to not have rules. I was thinking that maybe that would offer scope for, for growth. But, but I also heard you saying that you, um, that you actually have lots of, lots of clients and you're actually you're looking for people to refer to and I, I suppose I wondered how you how you realized there'd be enough of a gap in the market just to cater for dancers in the first place was it very obvious to you that that dancers as a population do have these psychological issues mm. so what happened was I it was seven years after I'd done my 450 hours to get my ticket um Seven years after that, a local lady who was a, a retired dancer was discharged from the psychiatric unit and found out about me uh, because she was told that they didn't have a psychotherapist uh, in, their, in their trust. You need a psychotherapist. And so she found me um, by word of mouth and I realized Sort of a few a few sessions in, so I, I treated her for about six months, and a few sessions in, that a dancer needs a dancer to understand what they had been through, first of all as a child, and then uh, in, into the profession and understanding all that. So when when I get uh, patients come in, one of the first questions I say in the first session is, "Have you had previous therapy? If they have, I say." What has helped about it? Most of them say nothing really, because in the first few sessions, I had to explain so much, I just got fed up and didn't go back again. Um, so it's, it's only very rarely, and, and this is what worries me about the schools and the dance companies having um, just therapists, ha having uh, counselors, using uh, the local counselor or counselor, you know, High street council, whatever you want to call them. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying you don't have the knowledge. Um, my, uh, I, I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be building a course. So hopefully, probably by the end of this year, I'm going to build a course for, so it's a CBT course, not CBT, CPD, CPD course um, for trained counsellors and psychotherapists and, and psychiatrists and psychologists, whoever wants to get it, whoever wants to do it, on 
this is what a dancer's mindset is. This is how uh, I've been treating them in, in, in the therapy sessions um, so that they have some idea that if they do want to go and uh, answer the call from the Royal Ballet School or wherever, they have more of an understanding. I've got these kids, these parents are contacting me from the schools saying, these, these counselors don't know what they're doing with, with dancers. And so they, they're coming to pay for them privately. Uh, and it's not, not right. That means that there's not enough counselors to do it. And that's why I was so joyful to find these two counselors that wanted to train. I wonder though whether is I wonder whether like other sports, whether it's helpful for the dancers to be able to go independently though. Because I think what I've noticed in other sports is that um, you know athletes are very frightened of going through official channels because they worry they won't get selected if they if they follow the club's recommendations, it'll become known that they've got a psychological issue. Mm -hmm. And actually finding their own therapist might feel a more comfortable approach, but it sounds like it's hard to get the balance right between knowledge of the industry and uh, independence and autonomy. Uh, you're, you're right, it's exactly the same, um, even in musical theatre uh, as well. Uh, and that's what I'm saying about the fear. The fear goes right the way through from vocational up to and into the profession. There is that fear that someone will find out. There's, there's also built in a fear of showing a sign of weakness, whether it's emotional weakness, whether it's physical weakness. So this is why we're told at an early age, you work through your pain. It's a tough career. You've got to be tough now. You're going to go into, into a career like that. So you work through your pain, which means you're going to be injured. And you've got to keep your mouth shut because you're injured, because otherwise they're going to take you off that cast, uh, cast list. And um, it's, it's horrendous the way that the fear is generated. That brings us very nicely to something that I was really curious about, Terry. So I'm really interested to understand the, about the relationship between dancers and emotion, because um, in, in many ways, dance shares commonalities with other sports, as you say, in terms of athletes often using um, their sports, their body to squash out emotions. But we associate exceptional dancing with emotional expression, don't we? And inducing an emotional reaction in the people watching. I mean, I'm sure when David spoke about his trip um, to the to the theatre last week, um, what you hope for is when you go to watch ballet or any of these other performing arts is to be emotionally stirred so how does that work then in terms of evoking and expressing emotion but also squashing emotion at the same time so if if grandma died the day before there's a fear of actually saying i'm sorry i don't feel like coming in today so you go in and there's a thing if you've had any other uh, actors or anyone else called um, Dr. Theatre, you just do it. You go on and do it, and the adrenaline just carries you through that sort of thing. So that's, that's the second part of your question. The first part of your question is, it's the same sort of, it's a, it's a motivational emotion that is created. So for instance, um, in Giselle. So Giselle dies and there's a mad scene, it's called the mad scene, so she, she goes mad and at the end of that act, that's the first act, she's left, she dies on stage and she gets up, okay, let's go have a cutina and there's, there's no sort of support there for someone like that. There's, there's no, are you, are you all right? You know, you're going to be okay. And it's, it's that same thing that I was saying about me. All right, okay, I had to give up. That's what I'm gonna do next. So you just think, okay, I've got now 15 minutes. I've got to get changed. I've got to da, 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 da. And the adrenaline just carries you through and the emotions are pushed aside. And then after the show, it hits you because you're just letting go then because you don't need to keep that adrenaline going. Sounds like it could be really quite hard to know what what you feel, what to feel, you know, same as uh, I suppose when you're talking about actors as well. But if you're having to have your own emotional response to your own life 
and then also produce emotions for a part I, I guess it could turn you quite crazy really it is I mean the thing was I, when I left when I left ballet um the first show that I did uh was West Side Story so the UK tour of West Side Story a fantastic show best show that I've ever been in it's not really like the film it's better than the film um and so at the end I would say um, more than half of the performances, the cast, sorry, the cast was in tears. It's bringing up the emotions in me already. Um, because everything, the whole energy of that last scene is incredible. And then we just go off and have a takeaway or go off to, and it's broken down. And you have to sort of let it go. There's the silence in the dressing room after after that. Um, you know, not many of us were talking. And then it's slowly sort of some some that uh, would, would come out of it quicker than others. But yes, really, it caught me then talking about it. Well, as you were talking, it was making me think of um, sensory motor psychotherapy, where there's a recognition that we end up we can end up with. Um, some of our emotions stuck in our body and the need to offer up exercises to allow whatever emotion is to come to completion and just thinking that actually it may be that um, dance and acting would benefit from making use of those kind of strategies more generally as part of their you know closing off the performance but you know once the show's finished but actually closing off the the evening's work by engaging in some of these some of these activities to allow the emotion mm. to come to completion. It sounds a good idea, but the only thing is that um, some people have got families to go to. I mean, I, I lived in Wimbledon at the time, so I had to get uh, from the West End over to Waterloo and take a train back home. Otherwise, it's going to be really late. So it really depends on how long uh, these exercises are, whether they're by thought or by physicality. Um, as to, you know, people say, I don't care. I don't, but the thing is, they say, I don't care. And then they go off home. And then 20 years later, it's all affecting them. I'm 73 now. I retired when I was 29. I was doing West Side Story in 1972. And I still get emotional. But then with those four years of therapy, I learned to break down the emotions and understand my emotions a lot more, which is what's helping with, uh, with patients. And, and so I understand what you're saying, Naomi, but most people won't do that. I think maybe at the, the uh, no, I didn't really think so. No, I think because we finished shows so late, half past 10, so the long three actors, Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, half past 10 finished, takes half an hour to get yourself out. It's 11 o'clock. Um, you've still got the adrenaline going. So on the, on the train journey, car journey, whatever, home, that's when you start coming down. Then you have to eat something. Can't eat before the show, you know, a decent meal because you don't want to dance with a full stomach. Um, so there's such a wind down there. And I think it's the wind down that helps a bit, but not really, as you saw, the feeling that came up for me. But uh, you're reminding me of the importance of a, applause, uh, Terry, because you know how at the end of a performance, particularly a performance that's been very tense, um, there's a second or two of silence and then the applause starts and it becomes an act of catharsis and the audience need it. And certainly you can see that the performers need it too. Mm. It's, it's a, a wonderful vibration. Uh, you know, the sound and the feeling of, of applause as well. And, and I think I was lucky enough to all the shows that I did uh, generated a lot of applause. And I was in a, a show called Billy uh, that starred Michael Crawford. So not Billy, it was, it was a musical of Billy Lyre, not, not Billy Elliot. And, and I was in that for two and a half years. And it, uh, eight shows a week it was, so two shows on Wednesday or Thursday, I can't remember which, and two shows on, on Saturday. And every time, the applause, 
was was wonderful and and it was just as i say it was the vibration in the body the sound of that uh and resonating in the head and it does release you it was a joyous show anyway mm. so there was there was no um emotional upset in it at all you know what we know about the vagus nerve it sounds like this could be something really interesting to study there as mm. well couldn't there in terms of applause and and emotional regulation um like singing or humming those sorts of sorts of effects that we know are mm. quite soothing and with it and you know you're saying that uh, there are the simple exercises of releasing the uh, uh, vagus nerve mm. as well and of course dancers can do so uh, I don't know how we're doing for time, but within sport, we've increasingly seen, Terry, that organisations have covered up abusive behaviour by people in positions of power, often the coaches. Is this something that goes on within dance as well? I think there was a yeah. film called Black Swan, wasn't there, which yeah. took up this theme. Yes, um, but nearer to nearer to our shores, um, Ballet West in Scotland. Um, a few years ago, I think that was before lockdown. Um, the principal's son, who was one of the main teachers, um, had um, a number of. I mean, they were all over sixteen. The girls were all over sixteen, but he he groomed them. Um, and there's a court case coming up. He's been put off twice. So I think it's in May now. Oh, and I can't remember his name. But I'll give public knowledge so I can, I can say, say this. But, uh, and then there was um, English, English National Ballet School some years ago. Um, one of the teachers there was in prison for eight years. And yes, it happens. Um, and it's, it's a very difficult thing to, um, for, the, for, for the principals, as in the principals of the schools and the artistic directors of the companies, because a lot of these people are well known. So you've got Harvey Weinsteins, and this is what's happening um, here. I mean, a, lot of, a lot of the, it, you know, you can call it, this, some of them is obviously sexual abuse, but a lot of it, is coercive control. So narcissistic um, leaders of schools or, or dance companies, um, and they use all of the narcissistic traits of coercive control and gaslighting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is emotional abuse. But the, 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 um, the, the board of trustees of either the schools or the dance companies are frightened of losing face of the name of their company or their school and they won't report it. So even if it's reported, say, oh no, you must be imagining it or something like that. But this is, this is not the case. So I'm trying to get people to understand that they have a right to do this and the right to stand up to bullies, to abuse, whether it's verbal, sexual, emotional, and, and even financial. You know, if you're not being paid well, you're being paid badly, that's the other part of the, the abuse as well. And they have a right to do it, and especially in this country, because uh, coercive control, it, I don't think it's been tried in court yet, but coercive control can also be from businesses there, the coercive control in, in, the, in the law courts gives the list of things. So they're only thinking about it in, a, in a, an intimate relationship. But I'm sure it could be tried that way uh, with emotional abuse, uh, financial abuse, mental abuse from um, bosses or from um, principals of dark schools. Such an interesting observation, Terry. Um, but finally, Terry, I mean, we can hear that 
actually the work of the work that you've been doing involves working with some quite strong emotion and perhaps also sometimes seeing the seedier more sinister side of 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 an area of um you know culture that you're you're clearly also very passionate about at the at the same time how have you protected your own emotional health when doing this kind of work and you know what do you do to keep yourself replenished and nourished um well i suppose that encompasses a lot if it encompasses the fact that um as a BACP member, I have to have an hour and a half of clinical supervision a month. Um, there is um, on and off um, counselling as well. Um, gardening, walks. Um, what else do I like doing? You still dance? Ah, oh, aren't I in tango and salsa? Gently as an old man. <laughs> Put my style, of course. I've got six children and um, 10 or 11, this is terrible, 10 grandchildren. So there's all of those sort of things that are, that are going on in my life as well. And I do leave the sessions, close the office door. Thank you. That was great. Thanks very much, Terry. Okay. Really good to meet you, uh, Terry, and thank you for being so tolerant with my inabilities today. <laughs> Not at all, David. It happens. <laughs>